Hello, my name is David Runciman and this is Talking Politics. Today's Talking Politics guide is with Aisha Zarakol, an expert on Turkish politics and also on international political history. And she is going to be talking about Turkey and specifically about Erdogan. These Talking Politics guides are brought to you as ever in partnership with the London Review of Books, whose summer sale with the Paris Review, two subscriptions for one low price, is open to Talking Politics listeners. Head to lrb.co.uk forward slash guides for more information, along with the usual lists of further readings from the LRB archive. So maybe we could start not at the beginning, but at the end and then work our way back. What, if any, are the limits to Erdogan's power today? There are almost no limits to his power today. In theory, the parliament could exercise some control over him, but parliamentary elections happen at the same time as presidential elections. So as it happened in the last election, it's very unlikely, even if there were new elections, that he would lose control of the parliament. And in theory, the judicial branch could exercise some power over him, but he appoints some of the high judges along with the parliament, which you control. So it's essentially a system with no checks and balances. And he has in recent years, but particularly maybe in the last year, been more repressive. There has been a clampdown on dissent and large numbers of people have been arrested. Just give us a sense of how repressive this regime is. So Erdogan started turning authoritarian openly in 2013, and this is a process that has gained up steam since 2015, after the elections that he came close to losing. And since the attempted coup attempt in 2016, it's been openly repressive. There are tens of thousands of people in prison. Hundreds of thousands of people have been purged from their jobs. Uh, Many had their passports revoked. Private businesses, companies have been confiscated. So, yeah, it's not a good time to be an opponent of Erdogan. But there are elections. Is it still a functioning democracy? It's a functioning something. I wouldn't call it a democracy. So I think Turkey now fits the textbook definition of a competitive authoritarian state. Because there are elections, but it's hard to talk about free and fair elections in a place where one person controls almost all of the media organs. And uh, there's voter suppression, and there are serious allegations of electoral fraud since 2015. How much of it is him and how much of it is his party or his movement? Are we are we really talking here about one man's personal power? If you took him out, would the thing fall apart? I think uh, if Erdogan was out of the picture, the regime as it exists now would likely fall apart. It used to be that his party, the Justice and Development Party, was kind of an umbrella party that brought together different coalitions. He's had purges within his own party, so he controls his party as well. Having said that, like any other regime of this type, this is true about Putin's Russia, he's made certain deals with certain centers of power. So I wouldn't say it's one-man rule, because nothing ever is. But if if he was out of the picture, those other groups wouldn't have his personal charisma and 
is know-how <laughs> and something else would coalesce in, its pl- in the place of the current regime. What is it that you think that he wants? Obviously, he wants to stay in power, and a lot of this is about ensuring that that's the case. But what does he want beyond that for Turkey or for the movement that he represents? I think it's become very personalized. I'm not sure that he's set out that way. But most ideology has been left behind. Uh, so he's acting like other populist leaders, saying whatever is convenient at the time. So it's about him and at times about maintaining, you know, pleasing his base. Beyond that, I think he wants to ensure the safety and prosperity of his family. There are signs that he's designating his son-in-law as a potential successor. He's elevated him to a number of key positions. So I think that his long-term plan is to stay in power and after that, his family to take over. With other populist leaders, there is usually an element of trying to restore something that was lost or stolen, often on behalf of the nation or the people. So is that true here? Is there also part of this which is about getting something back for Turkey that was taken away? Yes, he frequently invokes, you know, Ottoman past, Ottoman Empire, but also other Turkish states that have existed in history. You know, the presidential system was justified as a Turkish-type presidential system that was unique to the Turkish nation. So he plays both with the Ottoman symbolism, but also Turkish nationalist ideas. And in that, he is also rather similar to Putin, who uses both Soviet and czarist elements to justify his rule. So if you take the story going backwards, he's been in power for a long time. And like you say, this repressive turn is relatively recent in that long history. Are there points where a different path could have been taken? Could he have been stopped? Is there a feeling of missed opportunities? I think, yes, there are a lot of key turning points, some of which seemed uh, significant at the time they were happening, others in hindsight. I don't think there was an inevitability about this. Uh, But, I mean, when I look at the last 16 years that he's been in power... What I see is a mix of overreacting and underreacting. So when Erdogan Erdogan and the AKP, Justice Development Party, came to power, there was almost a hysterical opposition. And actually, when I look at the US and what's happening with Trump, it's very reminiscent of that early period where this paranoia about Russian interventions in in, uh, American domestic politics. I mean, of course, there's a kernel of truth, just as, you know, the Turkish opposition had good reasons to suspect Erdogan. But at the time, the danger had itself had not materialized. So by overreacting and then not being able to prove their case, the Turkish opposition in some ways undermined its own position. There was an early constitutional court case against the AKP in order to dissolve the party. And the party was accused of anti-secular activities. And it was a very close vote and the constitutional court decided not to <laughs> dissolve the party. This is, you know, it's AKP's second term in 2008. And afterwards, there developed a kind of a resignation or, and then it became more difficult to mount that type of opposition when actually things were happening. And then, of course, you know, the 2013 protests, the Gezi protests, and the first elections in 2015, the AKP actually lost its parliamentary majority. And the opposition parties could have formed a coalition government. 
but they didn't. And the AKP government restarted the war in the southeast with the PKK, the Kurdish separatists, inflamed national sentiment, and then were able to, they called snap elections November of that year, and were able to restore themselves back to power. So those are all, I think, turning points or missed opportunities. So with that last one, why did they not choose to form a government? Why did they not take their opportunity? Was it fear? Was it that the time's not right? At the time, it wasn't fear, because I don't think, even these days, you know, the opposition is, one could argue, is not really aware of the the precarity of their situation. I mean, one of the main problems in Turkey, as it's been elsewhere, is that the opposition just lacks organisation. They are always a no vote, but they don't really have their own concrete agenda. I think in some ways they were afraid of being being in government you know, and having to deal with the myriad of problems the country faces. That's always been Erdogan's advantage because he enjoys being in power and his base, you know, looks at him as someone, you know, whatever his flaws at least gets things done. You know, that's always the argument for leaders like him. They make the trains run on time, that kind of thing. Do the trains run on time? Well, Lately, uh, not so much, because uh, this type of government, you know, has kind of an expiration date, always borrowing from, you know, the future in order to make the present work, almost like a Ponzi scheme in a way. And at some point, you know, reality hits. So, but for many years, the argument was that the AKP and Erdogan really made the economy work. By all indications, Turkey is at the precipice of a, a major economic crisis, its credit rating has been downgraded several times just this year. And there's been a state of emergency since 2016. And one of the decrees under that state of emergency was that companies cannot declare bankruptcy. So <laughs> who knows what would be happening if, you know, if they could. So in, in a way, you know, the economy is artificially kept afloat. And all of that was until these presidential elections, which has finally delivered Erdogan, formally what he's had in a de facto sense for the last two years. So it's anyone's guess how long he can keep it going from this point on, but maybe it doesn't matter. You know, if we look at Venezuela, you can stay in power for a very long time after crisis hits if you control all institutions. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promo rate for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. So what do you think are the best points of comparison here? People do often look at Turkey and they want it to be a example of something that, that other people can learn from. It matters in its own right. Is it Trump? Is it Putin? Is it Venezuela? Whatever. When you look at Turkey, what do you think are the lessons that, the wider lessons that can be drawn? There are many points of comparison, which several of which I've invoked, you know, Russia, Venezuela, Trump, Hungary, maybe Poland, Philippines. I mean, there are almost too many examples of comparison at at this point, unfortunately. Sometimes I hear the argument that the comparison with the US doesn't work because, you know, these are different 
institutional cultures and what happened in Turkey cannot happen in the US because US has a longer history of democratic norms. At the same time, I see, because I've lived through what happened in Turkey, <laughs> I find so many similarities with what we're going through with the US now. What happened in Turkey over 16 years is almost happening in the US in a much shorter period of time. And maybe that's my own personal sensitivity. But maybe there is a lesson. I think if you don't compare it as, you know, democratic cultures, but you think of, you know, what are the obstacles on the way to populist authoritarianism, then I think a comparison is possible. I think we we are mistaken to think that democracy is the least removed type of regime from populist authoritarianism. I mean, if if you look at ancient Greeks, for instance, Plato, his regime types, actually what Turkey had before, which was a hybrid of military, judicial, bureaucratic rule with democracy, according to Plato, that would be further removed from, you know, tyranny or, you know, mass rule. And democracy would be much closer to it, or oligarchic democracy would be much closer to it. So in a way, you could say, the American regime has less uh, institutional checks against populist authoritarian rule than the Turkish one had, because the Turkey had kind of a, not well-functioning, but kind of a democratic system, which, by the way, extends back to 19th century. It's not, it wasn't that recent. So the norms did extend to some extent in the Turkish case. Plus, it had the additional institutional check of a very autonomous kind of judiciary that did not feel beholden to to elected politicians, they had their own, you know, secular kind of culture, as well as a military that didn't mind intervening when populists started gaining power. So Turkey, in some ways, I mean, not in the way we are accustomed to thinking about it, but in the way that Greek philosophers would have thought about it, had more institutional checks. And all of those institutional checks were unraveled by someone like Erdogan, bit by bit. So what does the US have, you know, in terms of an institutional check? I'm, I'm not sure. How much of it do you think is down to Erdogan's personal skill set as a politician? So is there, is there some lesson to be drawn here on the importance of the character of the people involved? Definitely. If we're ranking the skill sets of these types of leaders, Erdogan ranks somewhere between Putin and Trump. So He's not as strategic as Putin, although I think Putin is less strategic than we assume him to be. But he's a survivor. He can you know, read the situation really well, can always know what the right play is. He knows how to galvanize a crowd, his base. And you know, Trump has... I don't think Trump is particularly strategic. He has the other part of the equation. You know, he knows how to consolidate his own base. I mean, of course, in terms of the durability of these regimes, all of these things make a difference. That's why Putin has been around the longest, and hopefully Trump will be around the shortest. But I think they're all, in some ways, cut from the same cloth. Trump hasn't nominated his son-in-law yet to succeed him, but he's he's grooming him. He's put his son-in-law and his daughter in positions of significance, as Erdogan has. So your experience of this, someone who grew up in Turkey, who's lived in the United States, now lives in Britain... Do you think we are too, in the West, do you think we are generally too sanguine about the fragility of our democratic institutions? Even there's the American case, but it's also across Western Europe too. Do you think that 
those of us who've only lived inside this one way of doing politics would benefit from being aware of some of the things that you have experienced? Do you think we're blinkered? I have I have two answers to that question. One is yes. I mean, I've always thought that. I've always thought Western Europe and the US were relatively untested and people who lived in these places were congratulating themselves for having solved problems that they hadn't themselves solved. So I think that's true. At the same time, you know, as a political scientist, I know that that belief that, oh, that would never happen here, is like 90% of the reason why that sort of stuff doesn't happen here. It's only after that belief is violated that you're in trouble because you don't know how to <laughs> reconstitute it or resurrect it. So in some ways, it's a good thing that, you know, people in... Western Europe believe that their democracy is everlasting, or people in the US believe that. But what do you do when, you know, a bad actor comes along and says, I've got a better <laughs> better regime, you know, let's kick out all the foreigners. Then the resilience becomes an issue. I think Turkish opposition or Russian opposition to the extent, I mean, the op- opposition groups that exist there in some ways are more resilient because they've been around for so long and I've seen so much and they are you know willing to go to prison and you know that's why they can keep on going and I sometimes wonder if that will be possible in the west hopefully things won't come to that stage but I do wonder so to go back to where we started turkey today how bad is it in everyday life to live under a regime like this because it's not a totalitarian regime. And as you say, the economy may be in trouble, but it's not collapsed yet. To what extent is everyday Turkish life able to continue relatively unscathed by this? Or does it infiltrate most aspects of how people live? It depends. So for instance, academics are really affected by the situation because there have been purges in all, all universities and you know uh, everybody thinks twice about what they say and write. So if you hang out with academics, you really notice it. I think for the person on the street, they will feel the economic squeeze more than the political one. But it's also hard to gauge what people think, because all the newspapers say the same thing. If you talk to a taxi driver, you know, who knows if he's expressing his own view, because you both suspect each other of, you know, possibly informing on the other. And then, you know, Turkey is a big country, so... Even though it doesn't have a federal system, there is a huge amount of regional variation on lifestyles in touristic resort towns. It's impossible to tell that anything you know has changed. And as long as you know Erdogan leaves you know those pockets alone, people there may continue living as before. It's just you know because he has so many powers and there's no check on those powers. Uh, there is no way of predicting whether you know next week there will be a decree that says you know I'm shutting down all hotels or something, which he could do under the current system if he wanted to. But for now, he doesn't want to. So you can't tell that anything has changed. Are you fundamentally pessimistic about the medium term future for Turkey? Or do you see grounds for hope? Um, (laughs) I am resigned to the current uh, situation. And I don't see it changing for the better uh, anytime soon. I mean, these types of regimes in some ways are very durable and in other ways are fragile. You know, once they collapse, everybody says, oh, you know, I knew this was going to happen. But it's it's difficult to say when that would happen. 
people have been predicting the demise of you know Putin for the last you know 20 years but he's still there so Erdogan could keep going for the next 30 years or he could be out of power next year I'm not sure what would happen if somebody else replaced him because also the global situation is rather dire and there are no external incentives or pressures to put the country in the what what we would call the desirable track, you know, more democratic, more open, more this and that. Uh, For much of 20th century, Western Europe and the US was that kind of anchor for Turkey. And given what's happening in the US and in Western Europe, you know, if Erdogan goes, I don't see uh, the West anchoring anything that's happening in Turkey. So Erdogan may be replaced by somebody worse, you know, somebody less competent. There could be civil war. So I think for the short term, stability is better than instability. I suppose we hope that by the end of this period, geopolitical situation has improved for the better. The thing that gives me hope is what I mentioned, the the resilience of, you know, the Turkish opposition, journalists who kept on investigating despite incredible pressures. I mean, many of them have been jailed. Still, there are still some independent journalists. There are writers. There are people who keep on doing what they do, even though they are, I think, similarly pessimistic about the short term. So that type of resilience gives me hope for the long term, but not for the short term. Thank you very much to Aisha. As always, we will tweet links at tppodcast underscore to further reading on today's subject. I really hope people have enjoyed these guides over the summer. Next week, we are going to get right back into it. Trump, Brexit, the whole thing. Do please join us for that. My name is David Runciman, and we've been Talking Politics. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Hi, I'm Jesse Crookshank. Jesse Crookshank. I host the number one comedy podcast called Phone a Friend. Girl, let's phone a friend. Not only do I break down the biggest stories in pop culture with guests like Dan Levy and members of InSync, I do it with my own personal boy band singing jingles throughout. Because it's my show. It's your show, girl. New episodes of Phone a Friend. Yeah. Drop Thursdays wherever you get your podcasts. So work it, girl. Yeah, work it. Okay, that's enough. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com. <laughs>